Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the podcast we have Adi Angar. Oh, he's drinking coffee. Hello. <laughs> he was drinking coffee. I didn't see that. <laughs> we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wall. And we have a special guest this week and that is Nikola Petrucic. Nikola, why don't you tell people why you are here and what we are going to talk about today? Yeah, sure. Hey guys, I'm Nikola. I'm an Elixir developer from Croatia. Yeah, I've mostly worked, I worked with uh, two Elixir companies so far, both in the sports betting industry. So uh, Adi asked me if I could come a bit and talk about the Elixir ecosystem in the betting industry, since I do have some experience there. Yeah, so you're working in the sports betting industry. I heard you're the expert in sports betting, right? Is that because you've been working in this industry for a while? I mean, yeah, I've been working for in the industry for about four or five years. I wouldn't say I'm the uh, absolute expert. <laughs> I've just had like multiple, uh, yeah, I had multiple uh, betting experiences. And interestingly, quite different architectures uh, on both sides. Was it a coincidence that you kind of ended up in that industry? Or I don't, was it something like you seeked out? deliberately so my first experience with the industry was uh, just a coincidence i was contacted by a friend who worked at the company he said they were looking for back-end developers i worked with python before and yeah i came to the interview i'm a <laughs> i like sports i'm a big basketball guy so uh, i was uh, interested in working in that uh, in that domain yeah, after that, at my second company, it wasn't as much of a coincidence. As you know, <laughs> there aren't very many uh, Elixir companies in the world, especially like in Croatia or Europe. So I was just looking for Elixir because I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I really liked it more than I did the languages I used before. And uh, yeah, betting companies like, <laughs> like Elixir and uh, betting companies like people who worked in betting companies before. So it was kind of a, a good match for me. Yeah. Why do you think it is so, Nikola? Like, why do betting companies like Elixir? I mean, it's, uh, I would say it's just like the properties of the, like uh, all the positives you hear or read when you go to, when you read an Elixir book or go to uh, like a Medium article on Elixir. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Elixir is, uh, supports concurrency really well uh, and uh, i think that's like the biggest the biggest part of it in bet in betting systems uh, betting systems are usually like uh, large systems with a lot of external uh, data coming in different kinds of requests being processed all at the same time and usually like in as you know <laughs> in uh, like small bursts of time you have huge loads and yeah so uh, and you want to do that all concurrently. You want to do it all parallelly. So Elixir really has a nice support for that. Uh, some other things would be like uh, Elixir is memory safe. So it's really important that, that betting systems are reliable as uh, you're dealing with people's money, you're dealing with regulations. So you really want as, as a reliable system as possible to handle as much of a load as possible as you can. I'm quite surprised that Elixir and Erlang would be interesting for this. I mean, of course, we know it's relatively quick but it's not like as fast as C, C++, Rust, these kind of languages, right? So I guess you can handle lots of bets, lots of people connecting. Is this the reason why Elixir and Erlang would be looked at for a betting organization? Yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, like uh, C and C++ are always going probably going to be faster than most other languages, except like maybe Rust or something like that. But uh, yeah, you always have to make a, a trade-off. I think it's... Uh, it's it's a lot less tedious of a task to build a huge system in Elixir rather than in C or C++. And yeah, for the more performant parts, you would use C or C++ and just call those procedures from Elixir or uh, in recent times like Rust or something like that. Yeah, I also think, I mean, like what the complexities of, of something like a, like a sports betting system, which is inherently, I feel, often a very event-driven system, right? Because, I mean, you're basically waiting on things to happen in the real life, that data comes in, and then based on that, like you do business rule evaluation, there's not a lot, a lot of number crunching in there. It's just a lot of data routing and figuring out what goes where and like which numbers go up, which numbers go down. But in general, it's not like complex scientific equations or simulations that need to be run very fast concurrently. If you have those, then yeah, I guess C++ and, and Rust and whatever, that, 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 that's a better weapon of choice. But um, if you want to have a resilient system, which handles a lot of concurrent throughput, 
mean, kind of sounds like you're listening to Erlang written all over, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's also like I think the ease of scalability, right? So it's not that mm-hmm. if you do the C C plus plus route, you could scale, still scale it, but then you'd be spending so much more resources and figuring out ways to scale it in a first designing it concurrently and then figuring out horizontal and vertical scaling, right? With which Elixir at least vertically is very easy, and with something like Lip Cluster, horizontally has also become so much easier, right? And I think the added bonus is also with all these like sports betting thing, especially you if you need like a back office like B2B kind of a system, Phoenix and LiveView make it very simple and easy to quickly and extend that to like a you know simpler interfaces without having to create like an amazing front end or something. Not that you can't do an amazing front end with Phoenix Live View, but it's especially easy to do like a simple B2B kind of a front end or a back office front end. Yeah, and the thing is, uh, like Elixir is, I feel like Elixir is, Elixir apps are often written like, uh, yeah, you can crash, just uh, start again. <laughs> and uh, that's a very useful, yeah. very useful thing in bet- betting specifically. You'll get a crash every now and then, you just want it to start again, you want to keep it running, you can't have downtime, Yeah, you can't have latency, those are all very expensive when you're a betting company. Totally. Yeah, I think I totally, totally missed that point. Yeah. The reliability is so huge too. I guess like one more thing I wanted to say, like there's like one of the companies I advise on the side, how I sold Elixir to them and they, they, they do a lot of concurrent processing, but it's like the scalability within a pod or within a node, the vertical scalability um, with the limits that we have today, memory limits, you can pretty much increase memory to 200, 300 gigs and do anything in one Elixir, uh, you know, container <laughs> or at least a node with multiple containers but it, I, I think that is so huge building a C, C++ application that can do that is a lot of work <laughs> right uh, because these days you can have again like limits to memories like you know I think you can even have a terabyte memory right now and in clouds and that's like you know you can run Twitter with one Elixir node and a terabyte memory yeah it's expensive <laughs> probably not the best architecture but it's true I mean I honestly think that like the 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 value of um horror, you know vertical scaling has kind of gone and has been lost a little bit like in re- recent days of like cloud and Kubernetes becoming the norm because honestly I mean you said it's not a good architecture but why though I mean like you lose a whole lot of complexity in the sense of right. well if you, if you actually want to do horizontal scaling that's usually not usually there's exceptions usually not just a simple thing well spin up more of those things and it just works you know sometimes it is and then wait great <laughs> but uh, often it isn't and if you actually have the option to say hey we can kind of save on like complexity here and just buy a bigger BVR machine maybe with a back off you know why not <laughs> honestly why not because I, I still remember that like when we had kind of a similar project that was more fantasy football thing but uh, there we actually were doing horizontal scaling but um, because we were using commanded that was like years ago probably they they, they made that easier at this point but uh, we wanted only one node to actually do writes like to send out commands because then otherwise it could get finicky to deal like the implications of two two nodes issuing commands so then we had to like do do routing rules so we say okay like if it's this request right then can they can do two replicated read replicas kind of and if it's this request well then it kind of goes to this one writing node and i feel if we just said well just buy a bigger beefier machine that might have been easier honestly <laughs> but that's not that's not fun as engineers right like as engineers we have an obligation to ourselves to not stop at good enough <laughs> We yeah. want to go above and beyond. We're like, oh, vertical scaling always has a hard limit. Horizontal scaling on paper might not, on right? Paper, so, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. blah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's what an engineer thinks, right? <laughs> I honestly, I just want to pitch like one little uh, tagline we have at, at work currently where we are replacing a microservice land, landscape with a single modulific application, not monolith, modulific, right? They kind of still apply microservice thinking about having separate contexts, but it's one big code base hosted as one big thing. Um, and you have like this tagline for it, we call it delightfully boring. And honestly, that is a very, I, I feel like that is a very healthy Love design it. approach. Delightfully boring. Yeah, I mean, you may, you do make good points. Uh, I, I have seen like horizontal scaling being done really well with Elixir and Kafka. So Kafka, Kafka really makes it. If you use Kafka in like <laughs> a lot more places than uh, you would usually use it, you could actually leverage it to 
to have horizontal scaling as easy as, okay, let's just turn up more pods, everything will be fine. Yeah, I think that's the key, right? Like a nice async architecture with any kind of like bus, which is which can support that is the key for horizontal scaling for sure. But I mean, again, the complexity in de- design architecture also kind of reflects in complexity in DevOps then, right? Like it, it's just, it just, the costs like don't go up the costs go up exponentially <laughs> if you if you increase the number of microservices. If you have yeah, like yeah. four to four to five, it's not the it goes up exponentially. It doesn't quite go up linearly. You need a lot more people to manage five microservices than four. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely especially at the big in the start. It's it's a lot more expensive than having like a one monolith application. But yeah, depending on the domain, depending on the context. I mean. Yeah, if you're a betting company and you have crashes because your monolith can't handle something that a horizontally scaled application would, you're probably losing a lot more money <laughs> on those crashes than you would uh, paying for those pods. So yep. uh, yeah, it, everything's healthy trade-off, I guess. I also want to like to, just to like underline again like, that even when you opt for something that kind of like a more monolithic approach, that doesn't mean you have to deploy it as one big monolith, right? That is, I think, something people sometimes mix up. Like to say I have one code base, I need to de- deploy it as one thing. And I mean, there's no re- there's no reason for, for having to do that. You can very much have multiple releases, like which build different versions of your app. And maybe one of those is something which you want to horizontally scale because you say, okay, this is like an awful read heavy thing. And I actually want to scale it out. So I have these kind of deployed on 10 machines. But like the, the, the core of the business, which does background processing, whatever, whatever I don't know. Right? Like that is a thing where like I have a lot of write-heavy things. That is like this other thing I deploy, but it's still the same code base. You know, that, that is one thing I often see people mix up when they say microservices or monolith or modulus, where like okay, then one is deployed in one big thing and the other is deployed in multiple. But there's no reason for having to do that. Yeah, it's actually, that's exactly how it works in the current team that Klan and I work in. Like we have this like one, I guess you can call it a monolith that's, I don't consider the monolith. It's, it's it's a big app, but not like <laughs> <laughs> not big compared to other monoliths I've worked in. But yeah, we have like different deployment configurations, for lack of a better word. And yeah, the responsibility is somewhat segregated at the time of deployment, which is not a bad architecture at all. Like you said, yeah. it's also I feel um, du- double doubly so. I don't know. It's also very e- comparatively easy in in on runtime like the Olang VM, where you actually think about the applications in terms of a supervision tree, right? And you can actually say, well. In this deployment over there, that's the part of a supervision tree which is going to spun up. And in this deployment over there, this other part is going to be spun up. And like you have this very, very useful abstraction to say, well, that, that, those are the things that happen over here. Those are the things that happen over here. So honestly, if any yeah. of you listeners out there like are considering, oh, this should be your microservice, it should be your modulus, or I would, unless you have a very specific and very good reason to go with microservices from the get-go, and I want to hear that, reach out to me if you want to hear it, because I have not heard it yet. Same here. And then start with like a modulific application, like where you still kind of apply the same things and you make it easier for future selves. If you then, maybe your team grows, right? And you have multiple teams, well, then cut a thing out and put it in a separate repository. Like, nothing is stopping you from doing that, but at least in the very beginning, you don't have the whole DevOps overhead of having to maintain multiple responsibilities, multiple deployments, and so on and so forth. Because chances are, when you start off a product, you're going to get the separations wrong anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure how you ended up here, but sports betting. I guess I'm going to take us back to the Elixir and sports betting then, right? Like so. So Nicola, like how, I guess let's also stay in the same vicinity of the same architecture. How was, so you've worked at two companies. The first company you worked, I'm not sure if you can name the companies here or not, but the first company you worked at, did they also have this microservice approach, like horizontally scaled Erlang clusters that can talk to each other versus just scaled clusters yeah, that so, don't talk to so each other? Was, yeah. yeah, so it was a very like distributed system uh, with a lot of microservices and like very, in a true meaning of the word microservices, like very specific things. It was an event-driven system. So uh, like I would say the idea <laughs> was very similar to uh, what the, what Commander is doing, for instance, with uh, CQRS event sourcing, just a bit different execution, but that same approach. But yeah, there were there were like I think well over a hundred <laughs> microservices uh, communicating through Kafka, and uh, Kafka was also leveraged for uh, for storage. So there weren't really like uh, SQL databases <laughs> anywhere on the stack. Interesting. I'm trying to think how it would work. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I can tell you exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, you would have like two different uh, types of topics, right? So one would be like, we could call them like a command topic, which is similar to, which is used for communicating between services. Like send, uh, if you're using an event-driven system, you would send commands or events or whatever through through those topics. And those would be like regular Kafka topics uh, with low retention, a uh, couple of days probably, or something like that. And those would get those get processed processed uh, immediately. And then you would have uh, domain topics, which would be domain topics would be like analog to a table in a database. So your domain topic would be one message in your domain topic would be one row of your database table for some entity. Uh, in let's say in betting for sports events so uh, you would have a topic with just a bunch of messages with sports events and the last message for the event is always the current state and then uh, you can have uh, you can have uh, vertically scaled <laughs> microservices that that literally load or read through in the entire domain topic and uh load it into an ETS table or something like that. You would be surprised how how big of a load you can load in an ETS table and keep it in Kafka like that uh, with uh, not like terrible, terrible memory consumption. And yeah, it works really well. It's uh, like I said, it, if you get a crash in the app, uh, it would restart, uh, read the entire. Uh, so those uh, domain topics are read from the beginning every time. So you don't keep you don't keep missing messages and stuff like that. And yeah, it uh, it works really well. The APIs were really fast uh, since you don't have <laughs> database retrieval. Everything's in uh, in memory. But yeah, you know, of course, it has its problems. And everything you mentioned was true, completely true. Like uh, it's a lot easier to deploy. Uh, yeah, one bigger app than hundreds of smaller apps. I do like that the individual responsibilities of each app, it sounds like that itself wasn't distributed, like distributed, Erlang distributed, right? It looks like like you relied on vertical scaling for the individual deployments, at least. So you, I think this is actually pretty good. Like it kind of is consistent with what Sasha was saying, that it's only, it's simplifying based on responsibilities instead of, trying to optimize, uh, you know, for horizontal scaling. like that. Uh, and, and if you, for example, clusterize the application that is consuming domain, uh, from the domain uh, topic, domain commands or domain events, whatever you, whatever you said, that would be, that would make your deployments a lot harder because then, you know, that's good conflicts and stuff to worry about what Sasha said, like make sure only one message gets consumed at one time and stuff like that. So I, I really like the vertical scaling approach with, you know, using kind of the context or domain to split um, services into microservices and horizontally scale those. That is not the case in our current uh, team, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, the split makes it uh, easier to see when you need horizontal scaling, when you need vertical scaling. So uh, let's say, for instance, the API we were talking about, if the number of messages in Kafka gets way larger than it was before, it's pretty, it, it's reasonable what you need to do. You need to increase the memory, you scale vertically, and that's it. If, for instance, you can't process the number of messages coming in from like a commanded topic or uh, from a command topic or something, then you can scale it horizontally, add a new pod, uh, which can help the load. Kafka keeps everything everything uh, consistent. So, yeah, like you you get that benefit for instance uh, there i mean like i said there are benefits there uh, there are definitely drawbacks and everything uh, it's all a big game of uh, weighing <laughs> pros and cons that's engineering in a nutshell i feel honestly and it's also like well, what experience comes comes in and it becomes valuable but i'm actually curious because i mean like you just said like, i agree with what you just said Adi, with like not being unlike what i what i said earlier but it's also what is most important in a case like that is that you get these responsibilities and these separations right like right how do you do that and then i would actually be curious if you know nicola how how those how those um, areas of responsibility were identified in this previous company, how, how they figured out, okay, this is like one deployable, right? And this is another. Yeah, so it's, I, I wasn't there when it was decided that it was already the architecture mm -hmm. set when I came in. But uh, I would assume something seem like I, I don't think anyone there <laughs> first came up with uh, event sourcing or CQRS. But I would say like responsibilities were mostly, you would segregate them based either first on like uh, technical responsibilities for let's say in command that you uh, command is segregated by uh, you have projectors you have aggregators you have commands events and then uh, and then you would also uh, 
depending on the of course the of what of your on your case you you would segregate them on on a domain level so i may have a service i ha- i ha- can have an api service just for just for i don't know events i can have an api service specifically just for bets and stuff like that uh, so uh, and yeah it's a lot of you can never know <laughs> in advance you can only assume and look over the results and uh, reiterate and try to make it better on the second go but that is something i feel like in conversations is often glossed over right like uh, do microservices get the segregations and the separations right and everything will be fine but then nobody tells you how you do that and of course there's i also don't think there's a recipe you can follow and then you just end up with the right kind of separation but it, it is a point of application design and of system design that is usually, I feel, in, in discussions very much pushed aside, right? Like, <laughs> so I actually was curious like, how, how you managed to do that there because um, it's been a very involved process at, at the place I'm currently in because we are working on a new product now, which hopefully will like, launch throughout this year. And there was a big, big part of that was figuring out like, how do we, how do we cut these concerns? Like, like which responsibility falls like in, in, in which kind of area? Because we also um, wanted to cut the teams accordingly, right? Like having actually teams responsible for certain parts of, of, of the application. And make, getting that right, of course, there will always be iteration. There will always be something you learn down the road. But hopefully you start with a design which is not totally off. And in our case, we well, we, we, we apply we applied a lot of domain different design principles. We did Wortley mapping workshops, we did event stormings, and at the end of the day, we arrived at something we felt okay. This this makes sense. This sounds like a reason. So far, it's been holding up. But like I said, I'm, I'm curious to hear how other teams and other companies go about this. Yeah, if I were, I haven't yet had an opportunity to start <laughs> start the system uh, designing uh, its architecture from the beginning, but. If I were to have a go at something like that, I would, or if I needed to suggest someone how to start, I would say start with, yeah, exactly like you mentioned, uh, a simpler monolithic architecture you can, everyone can understand and work on. And then based on your, on your requirements, based on like new information on the size of your team, your company or whatever, introduce something needs to be offloaded to a separate service you can offload it to a separate service and you can build you will either get to a, like a really well made <laughs> a monolithic application which didn't need uh, separate services or you will get to a, a microservice architecture that was uh, actually segregated on based on your actual needs and requirements at the time you were doing them so uh, it would be probably okay you can never say uh, it would be perfect but yeah yeah that would be my general suggestion uh, other than if you have like if you have a client who says look we want this done with microservices because we had a consultant tell us we should use microservices then yeah use microservices and uh, that's pretty much it yeah yeah i totally agree with what both of you said i think one of the key points i want to highlight again that you guys mentioned is there really isn't a perfect design right away, right? Because like Nicola said, it's based on the usage, which also changes, right? So having, I advise startups a lot on the side and having advice a bunch of startups, early stage startups building the systems, I think one thing to optimize for is simplicity and flexibility, right? If you build a system which is not resilient to change, early stage, you're doing something wrong. If you overcomplicate, you're doing something wrong. So simplicity and flexibility also is being the key because things will change. That you just There's no way you will know how your system will be used. So yeah, totally yeah. agreed there. Yeah, I, I feel that is also something I, I can tell and I kind of have some experience in my career, like in the beginning, like when you kind of start out, at least it was for me like that, you kind of figure, oh, maybe I can find the perfect abstraction, right? And then it never needs to change again and everything will fit in neatly. And then like the customer comes, comes around and says, well, I want, a, I want a square in the shape of a kitten. And they're like, excuse me? <laughs> right? Like, how, how do I put this in here? My abstractions don't fit. And I, I feel that is like something a lot of engineers learn painfully. And it, I, I think it doesn't have to be that way, that a, a maintainable 
software system is a, is a system that's easy to change. And usually that yep. means it's simple. And simplicity, but like coming back to what I said earlier, like delightfully boring, right? <laughs> delightfully boring systems are something which well, you look in there and you're like, yeah, of course, this is how it's written. I would have not expected anything else, but the bare, bare minimum to make, to make it work like that. That's one thing I especially find very relevant in that context is something I also, I repeat very often throughout my day as, as a technical lead now is the last responsible moment principle. I'm not sure if you're all familiar with that, but the basic idea is is um, that you want to postpone making a decision until the last responsible moment to make that decision. Because very often, a lot of this, these complexities and like these weird abstractions come in a moment in time where you make a decision, even though, honestly, you don't have to make that decision in that moment. And you make a decision in a moment where you don't have the maximum amount of context to make that decision. And that is kind of what the whole last responsible moment principle is about. Like You wait until the last responsible moment to make the decision, because then have you, you have a maximum amount of context to actually make a good decision. And very often, you can just say, well, duplicate that code over there like once or twice, that's okay, right? Maybe maybe flag it like, with, with a comment that it's a duplicated thing. And then if we need to duplicate it the fourth time, then we can make a decision how we abstract it, for example. But don't do it immediately when you need to do it a second time. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's, it sounds like another version of basically the cost-benefit analysis, right? Like, make sure the benefits outweigh cost. But again, like, this is what what's key is, like you said, benefits should also include the your confidence in that benefit, right? So, like, if I think, oh, the benefit will be 10 and cost will be 8 random units. But my confidence is the benefit will be 10 is very low, then we should not make that decision, right? So it sounds like cost-benefit confidence analysis is what it sounds like last RAS responsible moment. Awesome. I had not heard of this before, but it's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, it comes down to trading. <laughs> risk analysis. Yep. Exactly. And you want to minimize risk with that. I mean, like you have to figure out like how much risk is there in not making that decision right now. And honestly, very often the answer is, well, not much to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Still people jump to making decisions immediately. <laughs> right. I do want to highlight, I think, because a lot of our listeners are jun junior mid-level people too. I do want to encourage them to over-engineer their side projects and their, uh, you know, things that are... Yeah, yeah. If you over-engineer something and cost of that is low, like side projects or something very, you know, simple that you're managing, I want to encourage this because to get to a place where you can analyze cost and benefit of a production system, you need that experience, right? But you won't get that experience. There's, there aren't enough opportunities to do that. The, I learned this by having like hundreds of side projects and like over-engineering those. Like that's the only way, I think the best way I think to learn because there aren't enough opportunities at your regular work, unless you work at a really awesome company, there aren't really enough opportunities. I'd want to encourage people to think through architecture, if not implement that in the side projects are like less, whatever, <laughs> not important projects, so they can further understand what is the cost and benefit, right? So it's super important. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think, I think that's fair advice. I mean, if, but you don't have to. I, I mean, we talked in the past podcast episode, I don't really do side projects. So even then you can become a decent software engineer. <laughs> I think Sasha, you're an exception. I think, yeah, I think some people just learn things and visualize things very fast and some people don't. I am in the latter category. I need to do a lot of side projects to be able to understand things. Some people are like Sasha, where they can like they're good at visualizing and thinking through a problem and solve like, solution quickly. But most people, in my experience, aren't like that. So, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, this is actually, that's a good point. Like I've had a lot of interviews where I went to, and they're like, "Oh, well, you've never done this. You've never done that." I'm like, "Listen, like I've worked a lot of startups." I learned a lot of my stuff by myself and just so happens that most startups in general don't ever get traction. So I, you know, I know the theory, but I haven't done it before and uh, I'm more than happy to, to have a try. And if I make a mistake, I have people I can call upon or I can research. I mean, there's ways around it. Right. But like, sorry, not everybody has scaled uh, Facebook. Right. Like you, you need to understand that. You know, this kind yeah. Of thing. So, yeah, sometimes I am a little bit like Adi where I could just like I just over engineer it. And but the problem is sometimes like all my effort gets wasted. Like I said, I, you know, I did a lot of work for a couple of startups and they all went kaput. So but at least now I know how to do it. So it's always nice to kind of bring up an interview. Yeah, in the end, you're an engineer, so uh, yeah, it's not we're not really our jobs aren't really to do the same thing all over all over and over again. 
yeah, you, we should be we should be challenged. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you ha- how handle this kind of problem where it's like because uh, one of my clients right now they're they're telling me, oh yeah, we need to run this stuff through Kafka. I'm like, are you serious? You have like four traders, and you think you need to run that through Kafka? I think we can just shoot that straight to an Elixir service and then just send out the trades. Like, I don't. No, no, no. We 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 trade a lot. Really, how many trades do you? Oh, you know, like sixty a day. I'm like. <laughs> so I don't know if he was looking for an excuse or or what the deal was, but it was very yeah very weird. Like that's never come up ever again. But you know, like I think there's got to be a limit of when to over engineer, right? So like if you're having sixty trades over an eight hour period with six people, it's not worth it to put in Kafka when you can just queue it in memory with Elixir or even put it into Open or something like that. Like there's so many ways around it. I'm gonna I'm gonna put another little technique I, I like to use in cases like that here. Uh, it's called nine whys. And basically you ask why nine times. So like when they say we want to use Kafka, why? Then it gives you a bullshit answer. Then you ask why? <laughs> and then at some point you actually when, when you can't really say anymore, well that I don't know. It's a fundamental property of the universe, you know. <laughs> it, when it, basically, when it ends up at go, talking about money, because at the end of the day, right, like businesses make decisions for monetary and financial reasons. And when you end up at the money, why? That is where the truth lies. And then often it's, well, why, why, why do you, why do you think in it Kafka? Well, we have so many trades, uh, we, we won't be able to do more, and then that will hurt our financial bottom line. And then you can kind of start educating. Well, honestly, Kafka is the system designed for like thousands. <laughs> of messages per second. You're talking about 60 per day. You don't need this. Yeah, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, let's call it ignorance. It's not from a bad place. Like a lot of people uh, who are clients to IT companies or single developers aren't really IT people. Uh, they haven't really worked with all this. They heard of it somewhere or someone told them or in the end they hired a consultant which told them that would be good for whatever reason they thought at that point, which you would never know as a, <laughs> as an external hire after that. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I would say like probably most jobs deal with difficult clients sometimes and this is just like the IT part of it. Yeah, I do want to also mention that Sasha had a great call out the nine whys root cause analysis. I think there is a cost to the whole Socratic questioning. People get frustrated very quickly. And I've experienced that people don't like to be questioned when they deeply know what they're asking is irrational. And that's why I think build, <laughs> right, building that equity, like if you're talking to a client, especially, you don't want them to look at you and be frustrated. Oh, this guy again. <laughs> you have to pick your battles too. But I, yeah, it, I just want to mention that because I used to live by Socratic questioning and then I worked at a startup for a few years and oh man, people hate that. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, that is part of the reason why I went into product development, because um, then you have this baseline of trust that you're all kind of working towards a shared goal, you know, like they don't assume that you kind of want to get plus one over them, you know, but that you actually are here to solve problems. And I honestly, that, that is maybe just me. I personally enjoy being this annoying guy, which asks these silly questions, you know? <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, why do you want to do that? Tell me, tell me again. Okay. But yeah, but why? <laughs> I don't understand. And usually, I mean, I have not yet had a had a session where where I did that, which didn't end up in learning something very interesting. And also, often, sometimes you actually realize, okay, well, what what they're asking is makes sense, but more than often not, <laughs> because more than often in my experience, people people come to you with a solution. They have a solution and they don't tell you what their problem is. And like when and that, that, is a, that is an issue because the people which usually come to you with that solution, they are not software engineers, which is fine, right? Like, I mean, that everybody can be a software engineer, but how would you expect somebody who doesn't have this background to come up with a good solution, like an appropriate solution, one that makes sense, that has like the, the best balance between cost and, and, and effect, you know? So they come to you with like telling you, I want a button here. And maybe the problem they're having is, well, the CSV export they've been using actually has a bug in there because the field is missing, right? Like something like that. So some, something silly like that. But they kind of come with you, well, I need a button to get the data so I can then put it in excellent version myself. And then I can, everything is solved, right? <laughs> and like, yeah. yeah. What you want to get to is like the problem people are having and then yep. you can figure out what is actually the, the, the thing we, we can solve this. And in the best possible case, and that, is, that has happened rarely, but it has happened, in the best possible case, you arrive at the problem and you figure out you don't need code to solve this because code is expensive to write, it's expensive to maintain, and it's, it's 
it's expensive to we'll just I don't know to keep around, you know. <laughs> uh, yep. So in the best possible case, you end up asking a bunch of why's. You are figure, figure out this is your problem, but you don't need code. You, you need I don't know. You need a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I that. A good example, but no, but. Uh, yeah. I totally it's, agree there. Yeah, it's similar to like uh, coming to a doctor's office and saying, "Yeah, I need this pill, this yes, pill, exactly. this pill, and this pill." Yes, exactly. That's a good analogy, actually. Great analogy. Yeah, usually people come to software engineers telling you, "I need Viagra," and you're like, "Wait, wait a moment. <laughs> Have you seen an advertisement for this?" <laughs> yeah, I, I also really. Yeah, I think we've talked about that a couple of times, Sasha. But yeah, any any code is tech debt kind of mentality where. Even if you write perfect code on top of perfect code, that is increasing overall complexity and maintainability of the application. So being selective about what features to add is also such a good approach to product engineering in, 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 uh, in general. And honestly, like it's all, you can really make it a completely egoistic thing because if I get paid for a system that is like... I don't know, 10,000 lines of code, but it still does the job. Like, great, right? I mean, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. yeah, like it's similar, like with uh, music. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, one thing to write something very complicated, and that that sounds di- amazing because it's very complicated, and it's a different thing to write something very very simple, <laughs> which sounds uh, amazing, even though it's mm-hmm. very simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, how simple is the second system you've been working on, Nicola? How simple is the second system? It's not. It's not super simple. Uh, <laughs> Are you laughing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we've been uh, using commanded, leveraging commanded, uh, and yeah, it has its ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still fairly certain everything can be done, everything can run smoothly, so I don't think there's any like major issues. But uh, yeah. There, I would be definitely consider the goal scale of the project uh, before I start using uh, commanded or it's not even commanded itself before I start using any framework <laughs> that hasn't been really tested on such high scale uh, usage. Yeah, I think what I add to what uh, well, well, Nicola and I work in the same team, by the way, for people who didn't catch that. But I think one thing Nicholas said, like his confidence in the system is high. And that's same for me. I, and I think that's for me, the reason is I think literally and it's crazy. I've not worked in a team where every single engineer is so proactive about design and engineering issues. It's like there isn't really like an engineer, there isn't a blind spot in the application, you know, the, the, a part of the application that's owned by a specific engineer who is not proactively finding ways to make the application better, not just doing the job, but also thinking through how the application will work. And I think even though the application we work in is not perfect by any means, there's a lot of work to do. But I think just that quality of proactive engineering is like a huge reason why I feel confident <laughs> in the application sustaining, you know, a good amount of load and stuff in, in, in the future. And I think that's also a key, key thing. Right? On top of architecture, it's also team building, building a culture within your team where people can, you know, feel confident in like bringing ideas and discussing it with the rest of the team. Yeah, I agree. It's very, it's very important to feel like you can uh, suggest something or... Uh say something is say you think you you don't think something is very very well made or things like that uh, i don't think you really say anything bad about the things that you want to improve or the people person who made it before you it's uh yeah everything everything that's been done before has been done in some other circumstances than you're looking at right now so i don't think it uh, that's why people should encourage it it's not if I say, look, there's uh, this part of the code and it sucks, <laughs> that doesn't really mean I mean I'm saying, look, the person writing this part, uh, owning this part of the code, uh, sucks at what they do. It's more like, yeah, the probably we we made this code part of the code like five years ago, two years ago, whatever, and our use case has dramatically changed since then, or our load has dramatically changed since then, or our style has dramatically any other reason is fine as well. So yeah, it's very important for people to. <laughs> Uh, to be able to express their concerns, their uh, suggestions and stuff like that. Yeah, especially when it's like an older piece of, of code. Honestly, I think it should, it's kind of a complement to it, right? Like the older it is, it's more of a, well, this thing has served us well for what, six years now? And circumstances have changed and change is really the only constant and an actively used system. So now it's time to say goodbye, right? I mean, at this place we're working at, we are 
slowly getting rid of a Ruby Monolith, which there has been, honestly, it's not even a very bad Ruby Monolith. I've, I've seen a lot worse Ruby Monoliths than this. It's comparatively tame in, in its monolithiness, let's say that. Um, but still, I mean, the thing has been around for seven-ish years now. And it's been becoming a clutch in the past few years. Like it's uh, not a clutch; it's becoming like a, a, a stone kind of. You kind of have to carry with us all the time. But um, it's just—it's still a testament to well, that thing has been business shipping business value. It's still shipping business value. But times have changed. Let's get rid of that thing and let's replace it with something where we can now make a more informed decision about what we need the moment. The moment. And honestly, like I've been working with like, one of my colleagues at, at the current company. I really adore this guy because he has like zero ego, like absolutely no ego. So when I tell, like when, when I basically when we go through these and like actually architecture discussions, and we realize, hey, that that thing over there, that's honestly like it's not really serving us well he's like yeah makes sense you're right let's get rid of it even though he wrote that thing himself you know like he's been the guy who who built most of those things and he's still well okay let's reduce complexity i feel like he kind of had to learn it the hard way that like a lot of complexity is not a good thing (laughs) but quite quite the opposite um so now he's very open uh, to simplifying things and having an environment where and having a team where being able to talk about those things openly i mean like it's also a matter of of language or like how, how you articulate those things but in general being around people which don't really have a lot of ego in the things they do but maybe mostly driven by pragmatism that is it's kind of liberating to be honest totally maybe sometimes hear these horror stories and honestly luckily i've never had to experience it myself but like from these people which like you change the line of code and then somebody comes around the corner like why did you change my code right like i mean i've heard stories like that i've luckily never seen it happen (laughs) i've never had to experience it but Oh, boy. I've had to experience it. it. I mean, I can talk about BlockFi is bankrupt. They're not going to sue me. But <laughs> but yeah, I, <laughs> there were, I have stories over there. A lot of people in the team I was in were really awesome. But I think teams outside, yeah, there's. I have plenty of examples, Sasha, where you're talking about. I think ego does come in the way. Um, people associating their work with their self-respect. And, you know, like, if you critique their work, you're critiquing them, even though you're trying to, you know, phrase it in, the best way possible. Yeah, that's a big hurdle generally for any kind of progress or any kind of improvement in code. So yeah, glad you have an experience with Sasha. <laughs> I usually only get upset when they change my code into something very stupid. That's usually what, what upsets me, which you see sometimes, right? People don't... Sometimes it's that they don't understand why code's written that way. Maybe that's a problem that written... We should have written something there to make it clear, right? Why it's like this. And sometimes it's just... I don't know. Is, I don't know. Is ignorance the right word to use? Just they just don't know any better, so it just happens. But yeah, sometimes I just look at what is that? Why would you do that? And I think we have a conversation with them. What what happened over here? And sometimes yeah, it's, actually, I find out because there's a bug because that happened. Sorry, go ahead. No, I actually just wanted to. Uh, yeah, I I had a very very similar situation to this. I was working on some code, and there was this line like it was in the whole module, like repeating in every function. At the end, there was this. Uh, it was like a test module actually. And there were there was this line, and I just couldn't understand it was like re-rendering something for no reason or something like that and at first i just went ahead and like removed it from everywhere because uh i would you what i would usually do is ask someone who wrote it for an explanation but the case here was that uh it was written by a colleague that left the company long ago and yeah i removed it but <laughs> just in case i asked another another colleague and a few hours later got back that uh, that that would have been a really dumb move on my <laughs> on my part so yeah I hope you edit a comment explaining why that line makes sense hope you edit a test that breaks if you remove that line <laughs> oh that even better a test that also makes it clear why that line is there that's the only worthwhile use for comments explaining why and not what right like because sometimes you have to write really weird code when you often when you have to work around an issue like in a dependency or something like that right like where, where there is something you're calling into which does odd stuff because there's a bug or something like that and then you have to write this really odd looking code which which takes care of that and that's the only circumstance in which i actually add a comment explaining i have to do it this way because of that because there's this issue over there i mean for example recently we um what was that again like we, we <laughs> right we had a, we did an up a minor version upgrade to a dependency like our http client and that actually broke our HTTP integration. And it, as it turns out, is, is that that was, it was a Tesla, I think, Alexia, I think it was Tesla. The compression 
middleware of Tesla that they, they didn't add the um, accept compression header before that. And like in the minor version, they added that. And as it turned out, like the, the, the it was Google PubSub API we were integrating with. I don't know exactly where the issue is lying there, like who's at fault, but basically what the compression that was returned by it the Tesla middleware was not able to decompress it. We didn't really dig into it deeply because, well, we had actually an instant active incident because of that, right? So we just, okay, from the scale we're having right now, let's just turn off compression for the moment. I mean, it's it's taking, what, like a few hundred messages per day. Eh, doesn't really matter, you know? But that was the case. We said, like, disabled it, we commented it out and what we commented. Well, this is disabled because actually Google pops up and Tesla do not agree here. <laughs> and we don't have the time to figure it out right now. It's on the backlog now to actually fix it properly. But my have even happened by now. But yeah, those are the moments where you have to write some odd-looking code sometimes to, to, to solve an immediate problem at hand. Do we want to transition to picks? Yeah, sounds, sounds about right. So, Amikra, before we do that, if people want to reach out, I guess, I mean, Adi, also you, I guess, in this case, how can they get in touch? If people want to reach out, they can reach me on my email or through LinkedIn. Old school. Uh, yeah. I guess I do have an Instagram, but it's mostly like uh, clips of me playing guitar. So uh, if anyone wants to reach out for that, uh, they can reach out to my Instagram. <laughs> I need a link to that. <laughs> so so what, what, what's your email? What's your LinkedIn? What's uh, your yeah. Instagram? <laughs> yeah, so e- email is uh, nicola.truesit6 with the regular letters without the accents above, uh, 221 at Gmail. Dot com. And yeah, my LinkedIn is Nikola Petrovic. And I can send the uh, Instagram to Adi privately. I don't think the viewers want <laughs> the guitar play. Okay, then yeah, let us transition to picks. So, Alan, you've, you've been very quiet, so I'm just going to put you on the spot here. What are your picks? So I just have one old game that I just started playing just before we started the podcast, and it's called Full Throttle. I don't know if you guys ever played that game. What's the title? Like, it's called Full Throttle, so I'll, I'll no. drop into the, the chat. But basically, I don't know how you even say it. It's just kind of like a point-and-click kind of game to a certain extent. It's made by LucasArts, and it's been remastered, and I was just kind of... You can flip through like the old style and the new style, like everything's been remastered and I thought it's kind of cool to see how they updated because this is a game I used to play way long time ago. So I was just blasting my way through about half of it in about half hour just because it's kind of like a, what do you call that? You know, something from your childhood, right? So yeah, it's just, it's a fun game. If you grew up in with Windows 95, I think uh, you may enjoy it. It's a very simple game, but kind of fun. It's it's from Double Fine. Double Fine does weird weird stuff, but like in a good way. <laughs> Sounds like you like that. Adi, Adi, what are your picks? I guess I have a video game pick. I've been playing a bit of Days Gone. I have avoided this game for a while just because of reviews. And I just realized what I've been missing. It's actually a pretty good game with all the bugs, kind of, well, most of the bugs resolved. And um, it's available for, I think, 10 bucks on the PS Store at least. So I think it's a pretty good bargain. Still looks great on PS5. So if someone wants to play that, um, someone's a PlayStation but guy, a person that wants to play that game, they should definitely give it a try. Have a couple jobs. Well, if you want to work with Nikola, uh, he's pretty awesome. And me, I'm not as awesome, but I'm, I'm still I'm still okay. Our team, specifically at the score, is looking for senior engineer, along with a bunch of other jobs at the score. So I'll leave a link in the description, but you guys can feel free to reach out to me too if you have any questions about the company. So yeah, there's, yeah we, we're still hiring a few engineers. Yeah, a couple people who reached out to me last, like three weeks ago, they're still in the interview process. So the process is still ongoing, just FYI. And as I mentioned last week, still looking for a founding engineer for uh, a really, really awesome startup. The startup, uh, uh, I can't speak much there in stealth mode, but they are commercial real estate, commercial estate management tool completely written Elixir. I built their application, 100% code coverage. It'd be a lot of fun to work in that. They are already raising a good amount of money. Uh, founding engineer will have a good amount of equity. I don't know. If you love Elixir, you're a startup person, you want to work at a, a high likelihood a successful startup, early stage startup, it's perfect fit. So reach out if that sounds exciting. Nice. If you, I mean, if I would be looking for a job, then maybe I would even consider. (laughs) I have three picks today. I'm going to start with a tame one. Um, I don't think I've picked that particular book before uh, because we kind of cut into like like how, how do you get your separations and your segregations and like your responsibilities in, in microservices or honestly in any kind of code base, right? I sincerely believe that domain-driven design is a very effective tool at that. Recently, there has been a book published which kind of is now the de facto default for getting into domain-driven design. It is called Learning Domain-Driven Design, very aptly named. Um, it's written by Vlad... <laughs> 
Kononov, probably butchered that name. Uh, <laughs> um, and from I honestly, I, I have to give you a disclaimer here. I have not read it myself, uh, but I am um, a, a colleague which was starting to look into domain-driven design. He has read it, and it's also been mentioned on the Kandinsky, which is like a DDD uh, conference in Germany, um, as like, now really, if you want to get into domain-driven design, that's the book to start. In the past, there honestly was not really a the book to do that. There were like multiple little different things you could look into. So it's really nice now that you actually have this one book you can point to and say, hey, you want to learn about domain-driven design? That's the book you want to check out. So learning domain-driven design, it's published by O'Reilly. And the second pick is a repick. I'm going to do a repick now uh, because I just finished that game. I just beat that game yesterday. Uh, it's Sifu. It's the Bruce Lee movie as a game. And it, honestly, it's really nice. Like it, it, You really could feel that the studio knew what they wanted to deliver and that is exactly what the game is about. It's like kind of this playable revenge Bruce Lee movie, like Kung Fu as a game. It's really hard. It's the final boss. <laughs> Good gosh, they, he slapped my butt a few times. <laughs> but it's it's just a pleasure to play, honestly. Like it, it's just so slick in the way it does combat and the slick it, uh, in the way it does this, this Kung Fu emulation nearly. Uh, it's a very fun game to play. Um, so if you haven't played it yet really, and you like deep combat systems, really check it out. It's not easy, but it's a lot of fun. Is it like Dark Souls hard or is it it's, like it's Sekiro dark, hard? I haven't played, played Sekiro, so I, I don't know. Uh, I would assume it's more of a Sekiro spectrum because it's a very fast game. Gotcha. Uh, nice. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. So I, I, I don't have it in me to do a Dark Souls like game right now, but yeah, yeah, I mean, if it's like Sekiro, then I'll, I'll give it a try. That's awesome. I, I can really recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and then the last but not least, it's like a super weird pick for this week. Regular listeners to the show know that I'm also into tabletop role-playing games. And one of my favorite role-playing games is Blades in the Dark. And I've recently discovered a hack, and I'm also going to hack of it. And the hack for everybody who's not into role-playing games is basically they, when you take a rule system and you do slightly change it to like tell a different kind of story, right? And I discovered a hack to play over the hatch, basically. So you, you play little critters, and which are go out into the evil little city from humans trying to steal food. <laughs> That's the premise. It's, I'm about to, be able to run it for some friends. Honestly, it's it's a silly fun. Just, just, just like playing these little kind of critters uh, <laughs> and which are defying humanity's boot and stealing the tasty food so yeah eat trash be free that, that is what it's called it's on itch.io it's only a few bucks you need the blades in the dark rule system to run it like it's really just a kind of reflavor and a reskin with like some slightly different moves but it's a, it's a lot of fun eat trash be free and I just see Adi, Adi bought Root, the game I recommended, I think, last time, right? Yeah, about to play this weekend. Its art is really cool, but yeah, uh, very excited to try it out. <laughs> okay, Nicola, what are your picks? Uh, yeah, so I have two picks, I guess. So first, for anyone starting or wanting to start Elixir, I'm sure it's been picked <laughs> on the show before, but I would very much recommend picking up Elixir in Action from Sasha Juric a great stand-up guy and uh, who wrote an amazing book. <laughs> it got me started and I'm sure it can get anyone started. And yeah, that was the, the useful pick. And now the video game picks, since everyone had one, I recently played the new God of War Ragnarok. Uh, no news there. It's one of the best games I've ever played. <laughs> the story is amazing. Uh, it's really hard on the hardest difficulty. So it's really, I would really recommend to anyone complete yeah it's amazing actually to add it is actually really hard on the hardest difficulty unlike the 2018 god of war which was not that hard on the hardest difficulty yes so yeah plus one to that technically great game nice okay uh, nicola was a pleasure talking to you it was a pleasure having you yeah it was great coming on thanks for uh, thanks for having me. and i hope all of you enjoyed listening to us rambling about all kinds of things and i hope you tune in next time with another episode of felix Simics. bye <laughs>